We left you at the end of episode 5 at Dublin Port on the morning of the 25th of March 1970. The ship came in, but the guns weren't there. We told you back in episode 1 that this is the story of a stunning 16 months in Irish life. We're now 7 months into that period and the storm clouds and the arms crisis are gathering. You're listening to episode six of Gunplot. I'm Nicolene Greer, and together with my colleague Ronan Kelly and the Documentary and One team, we are unpicking the stories that make up one of the biggest political scandals Ireland has ever seen the arms crisis of 1970. And remember, you can catch Gunplot, the TV documentary, on the RTE player. On the quayside in Dublin, waiting on the ship, were two men. John Kelly, the Belfast Republican, and Captain Jim Kelly, the Irish Army Intelligence Officer. They had with them a red truck waiting to take the crates of guns away. But John Kelly's IRA associates were also waiting, hiding nearby in a van, ready to seize the weapons when they came in. John Kelly and Captain Kelly recalled what they found out when the ship's hold was opened. The only thing that arrived were flight jackets. Yeah. All that came were the vests. That was all. They arrived. And uh, after a general route around, we found them. And I would, whatever, there were 40 uh, sort of uh, large vests for protection. They were used in Belfast. It seemed they weren't, weren't any good for offensive operations, I would tell you. You couldn't wear them. You'd be, if you wanted to escape from an army patrol or anything, they're the worst possible thing you could have a useless, I thought. And uh, the only thing was, sort of, some people said, about, uh, if you're on barricades and so on, and stray shot, they might use for having to keep you warm on a cold night. <laughs> no, no, that was just generally it. And uh, we learned subsequently that the arms had been put on board and had been taken off because they couldn't get an end user certificate. You know. This end user certificate is the certificate that is supposed to prevent arms deals resulting in undesirable arms exports going into the hands of criminals, for example. We weren't familiar with that term at the time, an end user certificate, but it appears that this is what one must have on this end, you know, to make the importation. As John Kelly said in that 1995 interview, if you're moving guns across borders, you need an end user certificate. False end user certificates. I got that trick from him. Frederick Forsyth, the British thriller writer, mentioned those when we spoke to him. Yeah, I didn't know about end user certificates. I do now. Remember in episode four, he told how when he was researching the illegal arms trade, he had met the same arms dealer that Captain Kelly was dealing with, Otto Schluter. Frederick Forsyth said that Herr Schluter didn't just provide guns, he also provided fake end-user certificates. And he was purchasing certificates from a corrupt diplomat from the Eastern Bloc who could issue them on behalf of, I don't know, Romania, Bulgaria, somewhere. And so that legitimised the purchase and the shipment out of Germany. 
The box of Herr Schluter's guns coming from Antwerp didn't have those certificates, and so the Belgian authorities took them back off the city of Dublin ship. Why did Herr Schluter not provide the sort of fake end-user certificates he told Frederick Forsyth about? Maybe he didn't have any, or there may have been other reasons. He had a dodgy reputation. He had been accused of ripping off clients. This is Sean Boyne, author of the book Gunrunners. Part of my research for the book, I spoke to one of his colleagues in the arms trade in Hamburg, and this guy said that he would have been trying to find a way of not delivering the arms to the Irish customers and also holding on to the money. The reason the Irish had come to Otto Schluter was because they needed untraceable guns, guns without serial numbers, so that if those guns went to Catholic areas north of the border and were seized by the British, they couldn't be traced back to the Irish government, which would cause a diplomatic crisis. But the author, Sean Boyne, says, with Otto Schluter, the Irish were out of their depth. Well, I don't think that they had experience of acquiring arms and bringing them across international borders. I think that they lacked some expertise in this area. But of course, maybe it was nothing to do with Captain Kelly's lack of expertise. Maybe he didn't stand a chance of getting the guns into Ireland. Schleuter was slowing up and not forthcoming. John Kelly. So, in retrospect, I have no doubt that MA5 were involved every step of the way you know, in this process. Because I figure now, again, in retrospect, that they knew from going back to the Markham Landel thing that this attempt to import was on and that they were tracking it. Possibly Schluter was playing his own game. Sean Boyne. And his former colleague said to me also, he believed that Schluter would have been keeping the German authorities informed as to what he was doing in order to cover his own back. And it's always possible that the German authorities learning of this transaction may in turn have tipped off maybe the British or the Irish, who knows. Whatever happened, at the end of March 1970, the guns the Irish government money had paid for were still on the continent and the 40 almost useless flak jackets had been sent up the road to Belfast. A few days later, Captain Kelly met the Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons, and told him about the cargo not coming in on the ship. I suppose that is the end of that, said Minister Gibbons. Captain Kelly replied, no, it will be all right. He had arranged with Otto Schluter that the guns would be transported from Belgium to Trieste in Italy, from where they would be shipped to Ireland, finally. Now, here's a detail we didn't mention about that boat that arrived with no guns. The consignee, that is, the company to whom the cargo was supposedly destined, was given as Wellux Limited. Wellux Limited was a steel fabrication company. And the owner of Wellux Limited was a businessman named Albert Likes, originally from Belgium. As well as a steel company, Albert Likes also ran a wood veneer company, and that was based in a forest in Donegal. One day, a local politician came to visit him there, Minister Neil Blaney. Likes and Blaney got on well and became friends. Albert Likes described Neil Blaney as a good Irishman. 
Albert Likes lived in Sutton, in North County Dublin, in a large Tudor-style house called Sutton House. And by 1970, the house was being run as a fashionable restaurant, popular with politicians who lived on the north side of Dublin, people like Neil Blaney and Charles Hohey. And how did Albert Likes get himself involved in the arms crisis story? He introduced Blaney and his cohorts to Schleuser. This is Ben Briscoe. He was on a parliamentary committee investigating the arms crisis. Ben Briscoe was a Jewish politician and found out from Garda sources that Albert Likes had been charged with collaborating with the Nazis during the Second World War. He was in a brigade called the Schwartz Brigade, had been sentenced to death by the Belgian government after the war as a traitor and was commuted to life imprisonment. But Albert Likes managed to escape and he fled to Ireland. When he arrived in Dublin, he had nothing. He had half a crown, he told me. That's what he had, two and sixpence, when he came to Dublin. The Belfast Republican John Kelly felt a kinship with Likes. Uh, he was a very idealistic kind of person, even though he was a successful businessman. Likes was idealistic about independence for the Dutch-speaking Flemings. And John Kelly could understand why some of them behaved the way they did during the Second World War. After all, he said, some of the Irish did the same. The Flemish people took the side of the Germans, somewhat similar to the IRA in the war, were prepared to sort of take weapons from Nazi Germany. The Flemish believed that this way they were going to get independence. If you look up Albert Leuchs online, it actually says he was in the SS. Albert Leuchs denied that and said that his own philosophy was in opposition to the Nazis. He told people in Ireland that during the war, he was running a furniture factory, which was taken over by the Germans to make furniture for their army, and he had no choice but to cooperate. There's always been an interest among Flemish nationalists, separatists, in the Irish struggle. This is Jerome Anderveel. He's a historian specialising in European studies at UCC Cork. Because, of course, as you know, in, in Belgium, there is this quarrel between the French-speaking community, the Walloons, and the Dutch-speaking ones, the Flemings. Mm. So they were very interested in the way that the Irish at the time, you know, you know how were they going to, to break away from England and start speaking Irish again? Mm. And that's what Albert Lauchs says. He says that he was much inspired by the Irish model. Subsequently, when, when the war started, the Second World War, and when the Germans invaded Belgium, some of these Flemish movements, they saw an opportunity through collaboration with the Germans to uh, achieve Flemish independence. So Lauchs himself, in his youth, well, he was very resentful of the French-speaking domination of Belgium. Now, there is a bit of controversy. Some claim that he was a part of the SS. I came uh, across a book written by a Belgian author about the Flemish SS, and he says that uh, Lauchs was never in the SS, but he was a member of the so-called Zwarte Brigade, which means the Black Brigade. There's a paramilitary force of the Flemish National Union. After that, when the war ends, he is, of course, in trouble because he has collaborated with the Germans. Now, he got 20 years for his activities, and uh, he claimed, uh, you know, uh, to have been perfectly honourable. I can't say more 
But he managed to get a Dutch passport somehow, flee to the Netherlands, and from the Netherlands he reached Ireland. And Albert Loix lived in Ireland until his death in 1978. Remember the problem that Captain Kelly had when he met Otto Schluter the last time? They didn't speak the same language. Well, Albert Likes could speak German, which is why Minister Neil Blaney recommended that he accompany Captain Kelly to meet with that other German-speaking businessman, Otto Schluter. So, Captain Kelly, along with Albert Likes, flew back to Germany to meet with Otto Schluter to try to get some guns from him again. That was on the 1st of April, 1970. On the 2nd of April, there was renewed conflict in Northern Ireland. This was extensive rioting in Ballymurphy in Belfast between Catholic residents and the British Army. Minister Neil Blaney thought that this was the doomsday situation they were all waiting for and he called the Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons. And he told me that the town of Newry was going to be attacked and every Catholic was going to be massacred straight away and was there anything I could do. And as a result of that conversation, I rang up the chief of staff and asked him if there were any guns that might be put in a safe place in army keeping that might be availed of if, you know, if the thing actually happened. That safe place was the Irish army barracks in Dundalk, right on the border with the north of Ireland. Guns, ammunition and gas masks were rushed there from stores further south. Those stores had been set up as a result of the February 6th directive from the Irish Cabinet, which instructed the Irish Army to plan and prepare for incursions into the north. Such was their haste in loading the lorries to head up to Dundalk Barracks that some of the gas masks fell out along the Dublin-Belfast Road and were picked up by schoolchildren the next day. But according to historian Michael Heaney, such fumbling belies the true significance of this movement of arms to the border. It was probably the most dangerous moment in the whole arms crisis. Irish army rifles sent on Irish army lorries by order of the Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons, Not some guns possibly bought on the continent by by a junior officer, Jim Kelly, but this this is the real thing sent to Dundalk on the 2nd of April. And if these rifles with full Irish Army identification stamped on them had been distributed to the people in Ballymurphy, it would have raised the most amazing diplomatic furore And this cache of Irish Army weaponry assembled for Northern Irish civilians on government instructions was sizeable. We know from the documentation that they moved 500 weapons. This is Tom Clonan, former Irish Army officer and security specialist. 500 rifles in the context of the Irish Armed Forces, along with 85,000 rounds of ammunition. That consists of a considerable portion of Ireland's arsenal. That was a very, very significant move. The amount of ammunition, 85,000 rounds, that would be enough to keep you going for about maybe 24, 48 hours. So again, that is also consistent with the concept of operations of a company-level move across the border. Also, the movement of such weapons 
by international conventions. If another power moves weapons and equipment to the border, you know, intelligence will see that as a potentially hostile act. Because you don't move equipment and material around unless you have a very, very good reason for doing it. Back in Germany, Captain Kelly got a message from his wife, Sheila. She told him that Colonel Heffern had been on to her saying that he was needed back home. Guns were on the move north and they needed him to coordinate who they should be given to if they were going over the border. Export of arms. Well, they suggested that, certainly. These are original recordings of the arms trial months later, and Captain Kelly is on the stand being asked about that conversation with his wife. Was it while in Hamburg, and at the time of your meeting with her, Schleiter, you got the phone call from your wife? It was prior to my meeting with her, Schleiter, that I got the phone call from my wife. Captain Kelly is being cross-examined by counsel for the prosecution, Seamus McKenna. You were told by her, is it correct, that you were to come home as quickly as possible? She told me that Colonel Heffern had given her a message for I to come home as quickly as possible. I said maybe I should check it out with someone. And Mr Gibbons was mentioned. And my wife said to me, that as far as she knew, he was not around, but that she knew that Mr. Blaney was available and that I could ring him. Yes. And I rang him. And it evolved when I rang him that the heat had gone out of the situation. What Captain Kelly is referring to here is the fact that by then, the rioting in Belfast had died down. And... Uh, I said to him then, was it necessary that I rush home as ordered by Colonel Heffron? He said he did not think so, that there would not be necessity to distribute these arms. It did not seem likely at that particular stage. So then I suggested that possibly I should stay on and finish the work I was at. And the general tenure of the conversation was that it had become more important in view of the move of what were traceable arms up to Dundalk for distribution to people in Northern Ireland. And another important event was going to happen while Captain Kelly was still in Germany. The next day, April the 3rd, 1970, back in Dublin, this happened. And first today, the latest on the killing earlier today of Garda Dick Fallon here in Dublin. Here at Aaron Key, the dark pool of blood on the passageway running alongside of the bank is the only grim reminder of... The shooting took place during a bank robbery by a Republican group named Ser Era. ...and started taking the money, but the bank manager succeeded in setting off an alarm. Immediately, a squad car was sent, and as it arrived, the three men were running out of the front door. At this stage, Garda Fallon and Garda Paul Firth were at the gate, and one of the raiders fired at almost point-blank range at Garda Fallon. He was struck in the head and was dead within five minutes. Dick Fallon, aged about 42 and the father of five children, is the first Gorda to be shot dead on duty for nearly 30 years. Roadblocks have been set up The country was in shock. Irish Gardaí on the beat don't carry guns, and now one had been shot dead by a Republican gang. Garda Fallon's funeral was attended by thousands. The streets were lined. 
four deep. As a young guard, John O'Brien marched in the cortege. He's now a retired detective chief superintendent. It goes back to the connection between the guards and their community. And this was the first guard shot since the 1940s. And it made a tremendous impact. And it was like, on the one hand, you were saying, you know what, do you want your guards to be shot on the street? Because this is where we're going. And on the other hand, do we want to be like uh, pseudo-Republicans and patriots and send guns to the north and cause an even bigger problem? The shooting of Garda Dick Fallon shifted the mood, according to historian Kira Mean. It is a significant moment for the state, first of all. Feelings were running high in the days afterwards, particularly after his funeral. Senior members of the Gardaí made cryptic comments about senior politicians spending time with members of terrorist organisations effectively talking about the provisional IRA. So I think Fallon's death in particular was important in framing the narrative that followed there afterwards as well because there was such a backlash against the idea of any sort of state involvement or politicians being involved with whether it was the provisionals or Ser Era who were you know a splinter group of the IRA you know politicians had to be careful to distance themselves from any sort of activity in that respect The killing of Garda Fallon not only changed the behavior of politicians but also of elements within the Gardaí themselves. Sean Boyne, journalist. The Garda Fallon murder may have encouraged elements of the Gardaí to be even more proactive in closing down the gun running. And I suspect that the Garda Fallon murder may have been a factor when some senior Garda entered the political arena by sending that famous note Yes, that note, the anonymous one we've been talking about all along, which was brought to the Taoiseach, the leader of the Irish government, accusing his ministers of gun running, and which we'll get back to in the next episode. Meanwhile, it's April the 4th, 1970, the day after the Garda Fallon murder, and one of the names on that note, Captain Kelly, returned to Dublin with an arrangement agreed with her Schluter for another consignment of guns which Captain Kelly hoped would arrive this time. Captain Kelly didn't realise it then, in early April 1970, but his difficulties in dealing with Herr Schluter were minor compared to what was about to happen. The gun importation plan was soon to collapse, and his days in the army were numbered. However, when he got back to Dublin on April the 4th, Captain Kelly went to brief his superior officer, Colonel Heffron, to tell him what had happened in Germany and to tell him that he had a new plan for getting the guns into Ireland. This plan originated after my, what I considered, very pertinent conversations on the 2nd of April with the people back here. Yes. That it had become necessary and more urgent that these arms should be brought in because if another Ballymurphy incident were to arise, it would be much better to have the correct arms instead of the traceable arms that were in effect sent to Dundalk on that date. So having got this information, it became more urgent that we should get the arms in here as fast as possible. This was the frame of mind in which I went to visit Herr Sluter in Hamburg. So when we arrived up there, we made arrangements for he to fly in the goods. 
This is Captain Kelly's cross-examination months later by Seamus McKenna for the prosecution. So the abandonment, abandonment of the plan to bring them in by sea and the change which involved bringing them in by air was a step taken entirely on your own initiative because of the circumstances as they appeared to you to have changed. Is that right? I had found out what the situation was back in Dublin and I used my discretion, certainly. But would you please answer yes if you can answer the question shortly. This was a change brought about entirely at your own initiative. On my own initiative, but not out of the blue. You came back on the 4th of April. I arrived on the 4th of April, yes. This was an important change in plan. Well, it was important to the extent that there was a different means of transportation. Oh, no. For a top-secret government mission involving the expenditure of possibly up to £30,000, did you at the time not regard it as an important change in plan that the arms would now come in by air rather than by sea? It was important in that the arms would come in faster. Even though Captain Kelly changed the means of transporting the arms from sea to air, they still had to have those end-user certificates we heard about at the beginning of this episode. And in the meantime, another factor was about to cause problems for Captain Kelly and his political handlers, Charles Hockey and Neil Blaney. Over in the Department of Justice, Peter Berry was becoming increasingly anxious about their activities. Remember Peter Berry? That civil servant in the Department of Justice who tried from his hospital bed to tell Lynch about the Baileyborough meeting back in October. Well, by this time, Peter Berry was back at work and in better health and frustrated at the lack of communication from Army Intelligence and its director, Colonel Heffern. Heffern wasn't in the business of sharing secrets with Berry. This is Michael Heaney, historian, who has written a book on the episode entitled The Plot That Never Was. He says Peter Berry, as the man in charge of the Garda Special Branch, felt at a complete disadvantage. Military intelligence and the Special Branch were not cooperating very closely. There was a lot of tension, there was a lot of resentments there. Certainly, it was a mess and probably is the key reason why the whole thing unravelled in the end. So on April the 13th, 1970, Peter Berry went to his boss, the Minister for Justice, complaining that nothing was being done about the blaney Hahi arms importation plan. And the Minister for Justice told Peter Berry to go and tell everything to Jack Lynch, the leader of the Irish government, which Peter Berry did on that same day. When the, the whistle was blown towards the end and Berry came across it, he had no mechanism to understand why it was that the Irish army and its officers were in the business of providing guns to Northern Republicans, which to Berry could only mean one thing, IRA, and enemies of the state. One of those Peter Berry would regard as an enemy of the state was Belfast man John Kelly, and he was still working closely with Captain Kelly. So much so that Captain Kelly sent him out to Dublin Airport just prior to the next attempt to bring guns in. They were going from Antwerp to Trieste, but we changed that and so that they would be flown in from Vienna. And I'd gone to the airport to tell the customs there that these were coming in as part of an official consignment. Why didn't you make this contact yourself? In the arms trial, prosecution barrister Seamus McKenna questioned Captain Kelly about this arrangement. There's no reason John Kelly went and made it, that's it. I know there may be no reason, 
But I want to know why you, as the man in military intelligence conducting the official top secret operation, didn't go and contact the man in Dublin airport yourself. As I sent John Kelly to do it. Had you any reason for that? I can't think of any reason. Except that it was convenient. Why was it convenient? Maybe I was going to the supermarket with my wife. As simple as that. Were you? I don't know. Oh, now, on this top-secret government mission, you were carrying out a minister's order? John Kelly was involved please, in this please. from the beginning. You were carrying out an order from your newly appointed director, which you regarded as confirming your authority. And you order, you send John Kelly on what could be a very delicate inquiry. Why? Because I know and trust John Kelly, and John Kelly had been working with me as the liaison officer from the Northern Defence Committees, and he was the sensible and correct man to send if I was not going myself. But John Kelly wasn't just a liaison officer for the Northern Defence Committees. He was, of course, in the IRA. And while he was helping Captain Kelly to bring guns into the country, his plan differed in one important way from the stated plan of Captain Kelly, Charles Hawhey and Neil Blaney. Their plan was to import arms and keep them in the Republic, south of the border, until they might be needed north of the border. But they were working closely with a man who had a very different plan in mind. John Kelly explained it when he described how he had had the same arrangement in place for Dublin Airport as he had had at Dublin Port a few weeks earlier. A group of IRA men standing by, poised to take the weapons. The people on the collecting point were always going to be Republicans. They they were always going to be not official army people, not official government people, but people acting on behalf of the Republican movement. That was always going to be the case from the very outset whether they came from the port of Dublin or from America or from London, the collectors were going to be IRA people. So there was nothing new about that as far as Jim Kelly was concerned. Perhaps the only surprising factor might have been that rather than go to this side of the border, they'd have gone to the far side of the border. You went out with Mr Likes again on the morning of the 17th. On April 17th, 1970, it was time for Captain Kelly to fly off to Europe again, this time to Vienna, to meet again with arms dealer Otto Schluter. Friday morning, yes. Captain Kelly insisted now that he be shown some of the consignment to be flown to Ireland. Tell me, when you saw them in that warehouse, you opened them and you examined them? I had one of the boxes opened. Yeah. Were you um, having a sort of a controversial conversation with her slighter as Mr. Likes mentions in his statement. When I saw the type of arms that were there, I had some conversation with her slighter. Why, what type of arms were they? They were were pistols. Yes. Would it be a correct description of it to say that yourself and Mr. Slighter appeared to be in very bad humour? Well, actually, there was an element of this because... uh, when I said to her, Snyder, you better show me this stuff, he said, do you not believe me or words that affect him? I said, must see it. So I went down to inspect the goods. And then when I saw them, my personal feeling was that they were not the most suitable type of weapon. Did you regard them as being of inferior material? The weapons in themselves were quite good and quite excellent, but the type 
But overall, were you satisfied or would you have been satisfied to take them as a consignment? Well, they were there, we would have taken them at that stage, I think. So all that remained to be done was to bring the arms and yourself and Mr. Likes back, as you had arranged. That, that would be it. As part of that arrangement, Captain Kelly had booked a cargo plane from an Irish airline called Air Taurus. The man they were dealing with in Air Taurus became a little bit concerned about this transaction. Sean Boyne, crime journalist. And wondered, is it okay? Is it legally okay? Contact was made with the Department of Transport and the Department in turn contacted the Department of Justice and it came to the notice of Peter Berry. He became very concerned about this. So concerned that Peter Berry ordered the special branch out to Dublin Airport. And he orders a ring of steel to be placed around the airport. Peter Berry's ring of steel around Dublin Airport became a trope of the arms crisis story. The author, David Burke, says it was a lot more low-key. I've spoken to a fellow who was working in the airport at the time and he says we all had flare trousers and long hair and sideburns at the time and all of a sudden there are all these guys with short haircuts and donkey jackets and cars floating around the hangars. We knew exactly who they were and it was great gossip as to what was going on. So you have the order from Barry then that if the weapons come through, these guys with their short haircuts are to seize the weapons. Word of this reached Charles Hawhey's private secretary, that the guards were about to seize the guns on the instruction of Peter Berry. That was Friday. On Saturday evening, the phone rang in Peter Berry's house. Peter Berry was in his bedroom and he had a telephone in his bedroom and he also had a sauna and he was about to hop into a sauna when he got a phone call. On the other end of the line was Minister for Finance, Charles Hawhey. And one of the most contentious conversations in the story of the arms crisis was about to begin. This series is still in production, so if you have any insights, documents or tapes you'd like to share with us, please write to documentaries at rte.ie. That's documentaries at rte.ie. Gunplot was written, recorded and produced by Ronan Kelly and myself, Nicolene Greer. Sound by Damien Chanel. Production assistance from Liam O'Brien and the Documentary in One team. Additional assistance from Sean McGillaforig, Roisin O'Dee, and RTE radio and TV archives. And don't forget, there's a companion television documentary to this podcast, also titled Gunplot and available on the RTE player. You've been listening to Gunplot, an RTE documentary and one production. We live in trouble.